It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 61, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Elliot Coleman. Elliot raises about an acre and a half of vegetables in Harborside, Maine, with his wife, Barbara Damrosh. With over 40 years of experience in all aspects of organic farming, Elliot is widely recognized as a pioneer in the world of organic market farming, especially when it comes to producing crops year-round in the northern tier of the United States. He's the author of The Bible of Organic Market Farming, The New Organic Grower, as well as The Winter Harvest Handbook. Elliot shares his farming history in this episode, including the ways that farming in Maine has influenced his approach to farming, and how trying to make Maine soil resemble Iowa soils has led him to develop the skills of observation that have served him so well in the development of his farm. Along the way, we get into picking rocks, marketing, plant-positive pest control, and Elliot's views on organic hydroponics. It was an honor to have Elliot on the show, and I hope you guys enjoy listening to this conversation just as much as I enjoyed recording it. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Elliot Coleman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. It's a huge honor to have you on the show. I, I remember the the first time that I was actually doing anything that resembled farming back in 1990 at the Deep Springs College, standing there with my copy of your new organic grower going, this is, this is all I had as a resource then about talking about doing organic vegetable production on any kind of a scale. Well, that book came about because of all the wonderful people I visited when I was trying to learn the game starting in 1965. And I thought the information that they conveyed to me was so good that it was my responsibility to write it down and pass it on. So can you tell us a little bit about getting started in organic farming in 1965 in on the coast of Maine? I mean, I... First of all, when I think about farming, I don't I don't go like, oh, I think I'll move to Maine and start a farm because you guys don't even have soil out there, right? <laughs> Not much. Well, I was actually living in New Hampshire when I got started. And uh, by pure chance, I happened to read Living the Good Life by Scott and Helen Nearing. And uh, it said, hey, you can run a small farm. Well, up to that point, I was spending most of my spare time uh, uh, climbing rock faces, running rivers and kayaks, going on mountaineering expeditions. And so when I read that, I said, ooh, that sounds like an adventure. And I was into adventures. And uh, so I thought, come on, I'd like to do that. And I came over and visited the Nearings, and we got along very well. And the following year, 1960, fall of 68, when I was ready to start, uh, I visited them again, and uh, Helen was very nice. She said, well, heck, we're not using the back half of our farm. We'll sell it to you for what we paid for it uh, 20 years ago. So, you know, Scott was a good socialist. He walked his talk, and uh, they sold me uh, uh, 60 acres for $2,000, which came out to $33 an acre. <laughs> and uh, we have, I mean, it wasn't a most people's standards, it was all covered with spruce and fir trees and rocks and had about three inches of topsoil. 
but uh, it was land and the place for me to start. And we've since sold three pieces of that to friends for the same $33 an acre because I thought it was a gift that only I shouldn't be on the receiving end of. And we have 40 acres left and we've cleared 14 of that. And we've proved that you can start with uh, a pretty poor foundation like we started with. And if you use uh, simple soil building techniques that have been known by peasants for thousands of years, you can turn that into incredibly productive soil. How long did it take you to turn the land that you're on into incredibly productive soil? Well, what was interesting, the very first year we were here, we'd gotten some stumps out, cleared the land, uh, and killed some lime in, and uh, planted a few crops. And that very first year, we grew 40-pound cabbages. Now, back then, if you ever read about a community called Findhorn in northern Scotland that Paul Hawken wrote about, uh, they had had the same experience their first year on a sandy acid podzol like we were on. And the difference was that they started a religion thinking that Pan had wanted them to show off to the world. And we took soil samples and went up to the university and asked them what the heck was going on. And it turned out that the first year out of a sandy acid podzol, all of the nutrition is locked up because the soil is too acidic for much biological activity. And all you had to do was lime it. And it would kick loose nutrients by the bucketful in the first year. And you could grow 40-pound cabbages. The people at Findhorn weren't able to repeat it the second year, nor were we, unless we went out in the woods and hauled in wood soil, and then we could repeat it again. So there was something very interesting going on. And right from the start, we got in to try and figure out what was going on. And then on the, you know, the, the, then we started adding all the organic matter we could find locally. There was a horse farm with a big uh, horse manure pile. They were willing to trade for vegetables. We lived near the ocean, so we could bring in seaweed. Uh, there was a, a clam shucking operation run by a neighbor just down the road, and if I showed up there at 3.30 every afternoon, he would fill my trailer with clamshells, and I'd take them back and spread them on the soil and till them in. And that was one of my favorite stories. So one day I'm doing that, and it's one of the few times the county agent I've ever stopped by. And he took a look at Elliot spreading clamshells and tilling them in. He said, why are you doing that? Those won't break down for 100 years. And I remember thinking, wow, isn't that the perfect metaphor for the differences between the way the two systems think? He was imagining that nothing was worth doing unless you were going to get an instant return. And I was there thinking, wow, there's going to be calcium in here for my great-grandchildren. So it was a really uh, – it was a wonderful experience, actually. Well, and I, and I love – I mean – what we're we're halfway there already, and you're still benefiting from those clamshells. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. No, that you can still see them in parts of the field. Uh, you know, they, I have now chunks of calcium on a soil that never had chunks of calcium in it before. And I just have to ask: Were you were you taking like the whole clamshell and just? throwing it on the soil and running it over it with your rototiller? Yeah, they are only equipment back then beside the 1948 Jeep that pulled my homemade trailer was a four-horsepower Choi-built rototiller. And after I spread them on the surface, I would just till them in with a tiller, and that busted them up 
to some degree, and every year that since then, if we've worked that soil, it's busted them up more. But there are still, I would say, pieces as big as a half inch in each direction still in the soil from that old clamshell application. And are you still adding clamshells? Well, no. The, that neighbor went out of business in the clam operation, but I have other neighbors nearby, wonderful, hardworking women, uh, whose husbands are lobstermen and bring home the crabs that accidentally get into the lobster traps. And then these hardworking women spend their days picking the meat out of crabs. And if I show up at their places at 3.30, they will load up my wagon with all sorts of crab shells, which are truly an amazing uh, uh, fertility resource. Well, and I know we can even buy crab meal out here. Yeah. In the Midwest. Yeah. So. No, it's it's a it's a very useful organic fertilizer. Once uh, soybeans went GMO, uh, we used to buy a little soybean meal as an extra nitrogen additive, and and after that we shifted to the uh, crab shell meal, and it's it's incredibly effective. You just mentioned the GMO thing, and I I think it's. It's something that's interesting to me about you and Barbara is that you've really been unwilling to compromise your values as you as you move your farm forward. Well, the only reason someone might be tempted to compromise is because what they're doing doesn't work. But what we've been doing ever since we started works just incredibly well. In fact, I think that's what creates most of the resistance to organic farming from the uh, industrial agriculturalists, especially the the companies selling uh, inputs to farmers, is that uh, uh, we get all these free inputs by working with the natural world. And you put in organic matter and and all the soil microorganisms uh, uh, suddenly multiply and they're behind all the good things that go on as the soil is able to uh, nourish plants. I mean, everything we've been doing has this multiplier effect. Uh, And... uh, you know, back when uh, uh, Barry Commoner's group at uh, Washington University, this is back in the 70s, did the first comparison between uh, uh, organic farms and chemical farms in the Midwest. And Commoner wrote in, in that study, he said something like, one has to admire the salesmanship of the chemical industry and in that they've managed to convince farmers to give up the free energy from the sun and instead buy it from chemical companies. But that's exactly what's going on. I mean, people have pointed out for years that there's uh, 70,000 pounds of free nitrogen above every acre in the world. And uh, the idea of buying nitrogen when you can use an intelligent rotation with legumes that'll take some of that nitrogen out of the air and put it into your soil. Boy, that's a salesmanship job. I'm always fascinated by by people, and I, I think you fall into this category, who who observe these things and and move forward on them. I mean, I spent years and years and years reading books, you know, your books and every other thing that I could get my hands on about how to do organic farming. But it feels to me like you found your own way. Well, there are a lot of uh, wonderful old books that I read when I was first getting started in this. 
and these surprisingly enough go much further back than than anybody uh, uh, imagines uh the first of the ones i've collected go back to 1890 and this was sort of a food reform movement in germany back then and people were becoming uh, suspicious of whether they should be eating food uh that, that had been doused with uh <laughs> believe it or not lead and arsenic because lead arsenate was the most popular pesticide back then and then they became suspicious of chemical fertilizers and started wanting their food grown naturally so the movement came from farmers uh, uh observations that holy cow all these chemical fertilizers the crops don't look as good as good the animals aren't healthy and uh, it slowly expanded into people saying, you know, wait a minute, uh, these guys are selling us a bill of goods. So if we do the uh, old, simple, natural concepts well, uh, we can be just as and even more successful. So you're there in, in 1968, 1969 in, in Harborside, Maine, um, farming on Helena Scott Neering's back 40 acreage. Um, where were you selling your produce back then? I can't imagine there was a huge market for organic vegetables. No, it's interesting. Uh, the I often think that a surprising number of uh, the people who came to our farm stand uh, were uh, cognizant of what organic was all about, uh, given the fact of how much uh, ignorance there is about it today. But uh, we are in uh, a part of Maine near the coast that, that uh, uh, goes along with the Maine license plate that says vacation land. And all sorts of people from Washington to Boston would come up to Maine in the summer because it was cooler to sleep at night. And uh, they were used to a, a, an assortment of exceptional food in their stores that didn't exist in the small Maine stores. So they could come out here, and if they were looking uh, for fennel or radicchio or uh, or, or high-quality bib lettuce, we had it. And, uh, boy, we didn't have to advertise. The word of mouth spread around, and we had uh, almost more business than we could handle. And we are uh, six miles off the main road, the last three miles of which are uh, uh, a, a gravel road. And if Harvard Business School was analyzing the potential of starting a farm stand out here, they would laugh. But the quality of the produce was such that uh, the uh, the customers definitely came. How long did you farm there originally? Because you, you farmed there for some time, and then you, you left, right? Yeah, I was here from 68 to 78. And then uh, uh, after I got divorced, I went off and ran farms for other people for 12 years. Uh, one was an organic experimental farm in Massachusetts, and then I spent uh, nine delightful years running the farm for uh, an organization called the Mountain School in uh, uh, Vermont. And uh, those were great years, but I always wanted to get back here, and so I came back and 1990, and uh, uh, I had been experimenting in Vermont with what we could do uh, growing in the winter in unheated greenhouses, and it even worked there. So I kept playing around with that in my home garden, and uh, lo and behold, it seemed like we could do it 
commercially, and we jumped right in and did it. And that's been more fun than anything I think I've done recently. And it really was something new under the sun. I know that when I got started in in farming, nobody was talking about growing things in high tunnels. That was a an almost completely foreign concept. Yeah. And yeah. even even several years later, as I as I started to to work on other farms, and even here in in Madison, Wisconsin, there was like one guy in 1993 who was growing things in high tunnels, and that was only during the summer. Anything that adds a, a new step, and especially a step that people probably look at as expensive, because everybody has always thought that greenhouses were uh, uh, extremely expensive before the realization that a high tunnel can be put up cheaply came along. But anytime there's a new step like that, it takes a while for growers who are very comfortable with their uh, growing outdoors to say, okay, let's try this. And we've seen this. Once we started popularizing the idea that you could do uh, fantastic unheated winter stuff in, in hoop houses, a bunch of people got into it. And then we were continuing further along the path we were following and find that if we made greenhouses mobile, uh, the uh, capital that you invested in that greenhouse was worth twice as much because it could uh, move from the crops it protected in the spring to ones for the summer, to ones for the fall, ones for the winter. And that was a, had very slow acceptance like uh, hoop houses had had at the start because it was another step another uh, new thinking pattern. But farmers are pretty darn sharp, and when they see a good idea, they usually jump on it, and I think that's what's happened with Zeitdahl's. I remember calling you one time, and and just for, for the listeners, I, I actually had the good fortune to farm what I used to say across the bay from, from Elliot. I was on, on uh, Mount Desert Island, and if you went around to the, I guess it was to the west, you went way around all the water and drove for about two hours. You got over to, to Elliot's place and we put up some, some high tunnels and I mobile high tunnels. And I remember having some trouble with them one time and calling you and, and, and uh, being like, okay, Elliot, why hasn't this problem been solved yet? And, and you said to me, well, Chris, it's just the perilous paths of the pioneers. And I thought, wow, that's just a hard way to go. Like sometimes I just want somebody to tell me what to do. That was a lot of, Tease all together at the start of one word, but no, anybody trying new ideas is always, I mean, it's, it's an adventure and, uh, you know, we have a movable, we have a little greenhouse on wheels that our 200 layers spend the winter in and we move it 10 feet every week all winter down a pasture and therefore they're spreading their manure for me and it's a great idea. But I remember the first year we tried that out, I was thinking, okay, every time I try something new, something comes up and it's a disaster. And I remember all that winter, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And this was such a good idea, it never had any any problems. So occasionally you luck out, but other times, yeah, you you pay the, the price of being a pioneer, but you also have the satisfaction of trying something utterly ridiculous and finding out that it works. That's pretty neat. Where did you come up with the idea to do the winter production? Oh, yeah. Um, when I was running that organic experimental farm in Massachusetts, for years I've been reading about this cold frame system called Dutch Lights that the uh, 
Dutch were using in the Netherlands. And uh, this is back in 1980, and uh, the Department of Energy in Washington had a very imaginative guy at the head of some program, and they were offering grants to cool energy-saving ideas in agriculture. And so uh, we applied from the point of view of this was going to be winter production without heat, and that was energy saving. And we built the, the whole uh, setup with these uh, low glass covers over uh, cold frames. And damn, if we weren't harvesting fresh produce in the middle of the winter, I mean, we had to dig the snow off the things, but uh, it was pretty neat. And the second year there, we put a couple of these cold frames inside a greenhouse. And that was like the great leap forward. Holy cow, we got a whole nother climate here, uh, uh, about 500 miles further south than we achieved with just the cold fronts. And so we, when, when I moved back here, we uh, played with that and found out that we didn't need cold frames because they're an expensive and, and labor-intensive operation. We could get by with just the floating row cover, which was wonderful because it was self-venting. And then all of a sudden at that point, he said, wow, we can go commercial with this. And it did, and, and it worked. And the customers love it. I mean, people would tell us that they, they used to sit around all winter waiting for the flavorful summer produce to appear. But now they were sitting around all summer waiting for the flavorful winter produce to appear. That was great. Well, and you talked about your farm being at the at the end of a three-mile dirt road that's at the end of another three-miles road that's at the end of another road. And and I think it's something about the coast of Maine is that it's it's at the end of the road. It's really hard to get fresh produce out there in the wintertime because you're just a long ways from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. My children say this isn't the end of the world, but they can see it from here. Yeah, we're but it makes it delightful to live here. It's quiet. There's no traffic buzzing by at all hours. Uh have to admit the end of the road has its benefits. Well, and you've got a nice little community there that that you've developed. I mean, I think it's a great thing about what you did with the land is that it's a way to get people that you like to be your Oh neighbors. yeah, no, we got a bunch of wonderful uh, neighbors who are equally loony, uh, a bunch of other aging hippies and we all have a wonderful time together. What are some of the biggest challenges that you had as you as you went through your development as a farmer? Well, if you go back to when we started, with the exception of uh, one book, and it was called Agriculture, Colon, I Knew Approach by uh, P.H. Hainsworth. But other than that one book, there really wasn't anything where someone had been trying to take a scientific approach to organic farming. And the nice thing about Hainsworth's book is it actually had citations in it. He'd actually found uh, some reasonably good uh, scientific studies. Um, up until then, it was all pretty much speculation. And I had no problem at all with speculation. I speculate all the time. But uh, we had to do an awful lot of work ourselves to find out what was going on. And I remember in the early years, we would divide a field into four sections, and we would till manure into one section, autumn leaves into another section, seaweed into a third section, and spoiled hay into a fourth section. And then in the spring, we would cross-plant all of our vegetables across those sections to see what was going on. And it was 
pretty fascinating. Uh, the tomatoes and the potatoes really love the seaweed, so did the beets. Um, uh, the brassicas did not like that fresh seaweed, and they would have problems with root maggots, but they loved the autumn leaves. When you till, till under autumn leaves uh, the next spring, they really kick loose a, a lot of tied up nitrogen, and so the brassicas love that. Uh, you know, the peas and the corn love the manure, and the, the spoiled hay, since it's just a good source of organic matter, was also successful. And then we just would try new trials the next year, and we actually had a trial where we had four sections, and one was oak leaves, one was maple leaves, one was beech leaves, one was birch leaves. The neighbors thought we were a little crazy when we'd come up in the fall over to their place and say, can we just rake up that part of your lawn where the birch leaves are? We want to try this. <laughs> but it, So we learned a lot from all these. And interestingly enough, oak leaves were actually one of the best sources of, of nutrients. Um, but that was the way we just proceeded by, by saying, okay, nobody is looking into this for us. We have to look into this ourselves, and we're perfectly capable of doing it, and, and let's do it. You, you almost make that sound easy. Well, yeah, well, it, it was. Uh, I mean, I've always had a uh, more energy and and stuff than I needed. Uh, I was kidding friends the other day that if I was a child in school today, they would have me on an intravenous drip of Ritalin. But uh, <laughs> so that was the way I uh, I uh, spent the the excess energy that used to you know run rivers or climb mountains, just uh, uh, learning more, like investigating this marvelous, mysterious world that I had decided to adventure in. I remember one of the first things I read after reading the Nearing's book was a, something, a soil microbiology text. And it said that there were a million live organisms in a teaspoon of fertile soil. Well, that number is considered far too little today. We can count better. But I remember reading that and thinking, isn't that the most exciting thing you've ever heard in your life? Talk about unexplored worlds to go and explore. And that was really part of the motivation that, that this whole system can be run by uh, figuring out who's in charge, and that happens to be the bacteria and the fungi, and uh, providing uh, ideal conditions for them to thrive. And, uh, you know, the old organic uh, saying about feed the soil uh, not the plant. That was exactly it. If you fed the soil, you fed all the soil organisms, and then that whole magnificent system functioned at such a high level of efficiency that everything you planted grew. And at some point, you began to get really focused on on this idea that um, that insects and diseases aren't the enemy. That you know, really looking at kind of a you know a healthy plant theory or a a plant positive approach to pest control. Yeah, yeah, that's been my favorite research topic I think since I began, because we would notice this, uh, and we even did very simple trials where we'd fertilize uh, uh, a f one half of the field one way, the other half another way, and plant the same crop in both halves and. 
we would have the expected test on one half and not on the other half. And uh, that was pretty neat. So I started spending a lot of time in the library stacks uh, trying to find old studies where people had looked at this. And there were an amazing number of them. I wrote a, I co actually authored an article on this with a USDA entomologist back in the 70s. And, you know, we had such a big bibliography, we couldn't put it all in. Uh, and yet, for some reason, despite all the old mentions of this and uh, and uh, organic farmers around the world who will tell you, oh, yeah, that's ex exactly my experience also, there is great resistance to accepting that concept. And I'm not sure why, but I think it's because nature is pretty consistent. And if I make the growing conditions ideal for my plants and have no pests, one is to assume that if we make the growing conditions ideal for our bodies, we will have uh, no or fewer pests and diseases. And that means that the responsibility for human health is in the hands of the person whose body it is. You know, they were given that nice unit at birth, and then they they feed it with Twinkies and devil dogs and Coke, and they wonder why it goes bad. Well, darn, if I misfeed my soil here with heavy doses of, of chemicals, it's going to go bad also. But I think people seem to not like the idea that they are responsible for the ills that befall them, either in their personal health or in the health of their crops. And that if they spent more time trying to figure out how the system works and how to make it work better, that they could do exactly that. And that's been our experience. We have never seen a situation where once we figured out what was going on with the soil and the needs of the crop, that we couldn't create growing conditions that totally obviated any need for pesticides. Did creating those soil conditions, does that take time or is that something where, you know, I can put down a magic potion the year that I want to grow flea beetle free arugula? Yeah, well, <laughs> flea beetles are an interesting thing. On our light sandy soil here, we have a very hard time in, in the heat of the summer growing flea beetle free arugula. But we have found that if we grow it in one of our uh, movable greenhouses, that the flea beetles don't seem to go in there, even though you would think it was hotter, even with all the vents open. And that's been our experience. So there are certain conditions I consider light sandy soil and arugula and flea beetles a case where the physical conditions are hard for me to overcome given the, the light sandy soil I started with. But I can tell you experiences I've had where we've been playing with, let's say, a, a green manure. and it's a leguminous cream manure, so we want all that good nitrogen. And if I turn that under and put in brassica transplants that afternoon, every single one of them will go down to root maggots. If I wait a week, uh, maybe 5% will survive. If I wait two weeks, 75% will survive. And if I wait three weeks for all that organic matter, which was not meant to be underneath the soil, but was meant to be on top, but which my tiller has turned under, if I wait for all of that to, to digest, 
I put my uh, seedlings in after three weeks of digestion, and I'm going to have the nicest brassica crop I ever had. And so, I, you know, I've done all of those trials because I'm curious how things work. And there is a digestion time after you turn under a, a, a green manure like that. The other thing I see on farms, if they're having pest problems with their transplants, is that I don't think most growers realize, but there just is not enough soil in a 128 for a crop not to be stressed by the time you think it's big enough to put in the ground. It is totally stressed. It doesn't have enough root run. And so that's why we have always grown in soil blocks. The smallest we use are inch and a half. We also use two-inch blocks. And we actually have been putting our transplants out even sooner every year than we were a few years ago because there seems to be some evidence that at a certain point, young plants move from the root growing phase to the, I have to think about being mature phase. And you really want to get them into the ground when they're in the root growing phase and when they're not stressed. So you put a stressed plant from uh, too small uh, a root container in there and you're gonna have problems from day one. But people have gone to the plug trays because they're sort of touted as the latest uh, uh, super efficient system. Uh, I'm willing to uh, put a little more extra time and putting soil into my soil block system because I know I have no subsequent problems if I put healthy seedlings like that into the ground. We did soil blocks for years and and, and actually purchased one of the uh, mechanical soil block makers that you talked about in your book when, oh, we, yeah. when we heard about one available in our neighborhood and, and used that for years and years. And, and what I found is that it was one thing when I had people on the farm running that machine and, and who had years and years of experience because it really was the soil blocks are kind of an art thing. Yeah. You know, whereas filling flats, that's kind of a science thing, right? You you throw the dirt in there and you scrape the dirt off the top and it's a full flat. Or a mechanical and, thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. mechanical thing. And we we found that it was it was a real challenge for us to get consistently good blocks, uh, particularly with the machine. It might have been easier if we'd have been back at a hand scale, but we were simply well, we just we we didn't. There weren't enough hours in the day to chunk out chunk them out by hand anymore for the scale we were operating at. But yeah, when I I've never grown as nice of a transplant as what we grew in soil blocks. Yeah, well, we've maintained our small scale mainly because I'm not going to live long enough to get enough more rocks out and fertility in to uh, turn enough more of this land into something uh, approximating Iowa as the. Uh, one and a half to two acres that we've managed to put into that state thus far. So that has limited our scale of operation, but we've just learned to work around that and uh, uh, optimize our production on that scale. And, uh, you know, the, we had 165 plow gross off that acre and a half, which isn't half damn bad. Uh, just from uh, doing double and triple cropping whenever possible, and and doing stuff in the, that includes your high tunnels too, right? That in, yeah, that includes a, a quarter acre of high tunnels. And on a, if people are curious, on a year-round basis, calling the uh, winter months eight months and the summer months four months, fifty-five uh, percent of the growth came from the four 
summer months and 45% from the eight winter months. But when you come down to the appreciation level of your customers, it was the winter months that uh, they thought were our finest hour. Yeah, there is nothing quite like the spinach and salad greens that you get in the middle of the winter in Maine. Yeah. I mean, I they they were never that good here in the Midwest. I'll just I'll just say that. You know, and I don't know I don't know if it's the good salt air or or what, but it's uh or the the excessive amount of sunshine that you have there in the wintertime, but man, they were they were something else. Well, you know, it it is interesting. Uh I gave a couple of talks once out in Iowa and I remember I came home and I said to Barbara, Wow, they got something out in Iowa I've never seen before and she said, What's that? And I said, They got this stuff called soil. You should see it. It's six feet thick and it's everywhere. And I think when you start with all the advantages like that, like maybe a grower in Georgia starts when they're trying to think about growing in the winter, you don't have the same drive that you have when you have three inches of very acid topsoil to start with and you're trying to figure out how to make it productive. And so we learned an enormous amount by starting on the, the, the back side of that eight ball and it really made it easier in the long run to know even more about soil fertility than if we'd started with the advantages of a, of a deep soil in the Midwest. I think that's a really interesting perspective and probably does point to how you've or why you've overcome the challenges that you've come and really put the, put the depth of thought into the systems that you've developed. Well, it's just also... It's fun to do what people think is impossible. I mean, that was one of the delights of being a rock climber in my youth. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to go up that cliff. Well, no, it isn't really. You see, there's this little crack there, and then if you, you cut over there and do a traverse here, um, it was pretty darn neat. And it, what made it fun was not standing on top, that's actually the dullest part, but trying to figure out how to get there. So small organic farming is all the delights of trying to figure out how to get there, how, how to puzzle out the way to achieve the, your, what you're trying to achieve. And that's why it's been a continual fascination to me for almost 50 years because it's never been dull. Well, and just to follow on with that and to loop back to that plant positive approach, do you have you seen that there are solutions that that work everywhere? I mean, you know, if you're trying to figure out how to avoid root maggots on your brassicas, um, is the same thing going to work in Iowa that works in Maine that works in Georgia? Or are these things that everybody's going to have to figure out? at least in their own in their own climates and areas if not in their own on their own farms. Yeah, I interesting. Um I read a old study I think from the uh, the 20s or so where uh, uh vegetable growers had figured out that extra nitrogen for brassicas prevented root maggots and they would actually put on extra sodium nitrate or whatever they were using. Well, Basically, if I turn under a good leguminous green manure and give it the required three to four weeks to successfully decompose, uh, I'm going to have a successful, uh, uh, very, very healthy uh, field of brassicas. The more difficult to control pest actually was the uh, 
white butterfly, uh, the cabbage butterfly. And that was about, I would say, 10, maybe 12 years ago that we finally had the soil, whatever processes were going on, and I can't claim I have any idea what they were, but finally had the soil in shape. So there are now uh, no green worms on the on the broccoli. There's butterflies flying everywhere, not on the kale, not on the uh, uh, cauliflower. And so all of these things, it's coming from the soil. And there, you know, if you read about the rhizosphere effect and and all of the the new thinking about how the the soil microbiome and the human microbiome are are connected, well, there's great stuff going on there. But when you finally get the biological activity going properly in your soil, uh, I don't think you have to worry about pest uh, problems. There is one we haven't conquered yet. I think I'm going to be very sad when I finally do it. We still have a bit of a problem from the Colorado potato beetle or depending on whose research you read, one guy thought it should be called the Iowa potato beetle at Colorado was not at fault. But uh, that's the one pest and I'm working on a bunch of different uh, uh, soil improvement systems this summer, uh, I think we'll finally overcome that one. But what's fascinating about this, if you figure that the guy who's been overcoming all of this has a degree in literature, he doesn't have a degree in agriculture or biology or botany or any of those things. And it's just from paying attention to what happens when uh, when you use techniques on the farm and then drawing conclusions for that, that has been so useful in allowing us to make progress on this front. With that, Elliot, we're going to take a quick break and get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. No problem. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really great transplants, year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food wastes to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort V mix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steel steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. 
Whether you're looking for a rototiller, power harrow, rotary plow, flail mower, snow thrower, sickle bar mower, chipper, log splitter, or just about anything else, you can run it on a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. It's pretty cool. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're and we're back with Elliot Coleman and and I I mentioned to Elliot over the break that Vermont Compost was one of our sponsors for the show. He said, "Well, Carl's a great guy." And he said, and, I'll, and I'd like to put in a plug. And the plug is that it's simply the, the very best commercial potting soil I've ever used. Uh, Carl's a genius at composting and a genius at compounding potting soils. And uh, yeah, what, what should I say at this point? I'm not being paid for this. No, it's just I'm a great fan of a product that makes my life easier. It's interesting when you, when you say that. It, it came out so clearly in the interview that I did with Carl that you both have that that strength of observation that that looking at what's going on trying to figure out how to move things forward and coming up with really creative solutions that are I mean to use an overword overused phrase really out of the box yeah 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 well uh that's what makes it fun to do it along that thread You've been a you've invented a lot of tools over the years, and have and if not outright invented them, have have noted their utility in in other environments and brought them in and introduced them to the United States. Um, I even remember one time when we were trying when I was trying to figure out how to get the uh, the weeding done on these little you know two and a quarter inch rows that we were planting with that pinpoint cedar from Johnny's for salad greens in the greenhouse. And I came over and visited you, and you, I mean, like it was nothing, took some number nine wire and an old hoe handle and bent and ground me a little hoe that that we could use to slide between those rows. But it was like you looked at the problem and said, oh, yeah, here's the solution to that. And I just think it's, it's really fascinating to me that you've done that with so many tools over the years. Yeah, well, there's there's always a solution. Actually, at the moment, we prefer to prevent the problem by uh, uh, using a flame weeder about six or seven days after we sow the carrots, if we isn't on a on a uh, stale seed bed to begin with, and that really has solved a lot of problems. Uh, the other thing we've been doing in the greenhouses is uh, taking all the crops out of them for a month in the heat of the summer moistening the soil thoroughly, covering it with a single sheet of plastic and shutting up the greenhouse and solarizing the soil. And uh, this is an idea that's been used out of doors in warm countries, but uh, nobody in Maine would use it, but it works well in the greenhouse. And the whole idea is if we can hit 145 degrees about two inches down, we've uh, uh, done in all the weed seeds in the top two inches, and most weeds won't germinate if the seed is more than two inches down. And 145 degrees is pretty much the temperature of a compost heap, so there's no damage going on. In fact, if you read all the uh, literature on solarizing, it's one of the best uh, things you can do. And my God, the uh, the weed control following doing that all winter long is is absolutely exciting so we don't even flame in there anymore uh, because we've dealt with it all beforehand but yeah other tools I mean when I started I think there was one hoe with a small blade I think it was called an onion hoe in the hardware store 
And we used to try all of them because uh, the first thing we realized back in the uh, uh, late 60s was that uh, we were still using 19th century tools. No one had ever figured out how to make small-scale vegetable growing more efficient because nobody was doing it anymore. And so we messed around with changing the angle on the hoe head, the angle to the handle, the, the width of it, the, the depth of it, and how we sharpened it. And out of that came tools like the colonial hoe and, and the wire weeder. And you know, I'm an odd tourist. One times when I've been in Europe on farm tours, I don't go to art museums in my spare time. I go to hardware stores and that was how I found all sorts of neat things like an Austrian hay rake with an adjustable head. And uh, I found that pinpoint cedar over there in a, in a hardware store. And so there were there was a small farming culture in other parts of the world, and its tools weren't making it over here. So I was just fortunate enough to see it and be curious about it and uh, and, and brought them over. And then there were tools uh, – like what is now called the broad fork, but actually it was invented by a little French farmer named André Grelin, and he was selling it in France as the Grelinette, trying to make his name famous for generations to come. And we thought it was a great tool, but we saw ways we could modify it. And uh, so that's now you know, made and, and sold by Johnny's. Probably the, the absolute best model is sold by them that works so well. And just the, the, a lot of little things like that where you could make a, a slight change in the way a, a tool was put together and make it uh, work better. And you know, we, in the greenhouses, we wanted a way to... Uh, to till uh, 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 amendments into the top couple of inches of the soil. And so uh, I created that thing in the Johnny's catalog called the tilter. And heck, I didn't want to mess with uh, with uh, electric motors. I don't know anything about them, but I had a cordless drill. Mr. DeWalt had already solved the problems, and we could run it on that, and there were no fumes in the greenhouse. and. We designed it so it wouldn't go more than two inches deep, so it would mix in the amendments but not bring up new weed seeds from below. This was all a case of, of trying to put in one tool a bunch of the qualities you wanted and then finding a way to, uh, to make it work as uh, simply as possible. And you were involved for some time with Smith & Hawken when they were back in the tool business, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a great catalog after... Uh, they started selling uh, a topiary basil and things like that. Paul got a letter from a customer who said, well, I went to your tool catalog but, I, catalog, but I had a hard time finding the tools because there were so many other things in there. And Paul wrote this wonderful letter back to him saying, well, that, that was the problem with making lifetime tools, that after a while you'd sold them to all the people and they hadn't died and the tool hadn't worn out. And you, if you're going to remain in the catalog business, you had to bring in things that's, that's spoiled or something. But yeah, no, they, that, that was wonderful. Paul did an awesome job of, of giving people access to a wide range of tools that had never been easy to get before. What's your favorite source for tools now? I mean, I know Johnny's has has a pretty broad selection and, and you work with them as an advisor or at least you have yeah no I, I i work with them uh, rob johnson's an old friend and i think it's just one of the the noblest 
seed catalogs out there because it's been sold to the employees and uh, uh, they have a great tool guy, Adam Lemieux, who's been in charge of that department. And I don't think growers realize how much they owe to Adam for all the effort he's put into uh, uh, making better tool systems available and getting them made and uh, and saying that they were uh, available at a uh, at a reasonable cost. Are there other sources that you that you like for some of the more oddball tools that Johnny's isn't carrying? Yeah, um, well, the wonderful thing about the fact that people have heard of my uh, connection to tools is probably at least once a week I'll get another email from somebody who says, "Hey, you know, I had this neat idea, and here it is." And uh, I send these people on to to Johnny's to see if uh, Johnny has any interest in commercializing these things. But the point of that story is to tell you that there are an awful lot of really intelligent small farmers out there uh, solving problems the same way farmers have always solved problems and trying to come up with a, a simple solution. And in many cases, these things are the ideas, if they're truly simple, are just published in some website somewhere and given away. And uh, I think in most cases, the good ones are simple enough that anybody with a shop could make it themselves. In fact, the the hoe we've been having the most fun with recently is one that's just made out of a, a simple triangle of number nine wire that uh, does a fantastic job on, on tiny white thread stage uh, weeds. Just going through as as is it just the rounded wire that you go through? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it, it, I was kidding about this. So I said, okay, if I have a blade and I sharpen it, you know, that's a weapon. That, that means I have an enemy out there. And uh, I don't think these uh, uh, white thread root tiny weeds are enemies. I call them an inconvenience. And I said, if you're writing with a pencil and make a mistake, the mistake isn't an enemy, it's an inconvenience, and you turn the pencil over and scrub it out. So this hoe made with just a a wire blade is now known as the eraser because it isn't a weapon. It's just a way to uh, very comfortably deal with inconveniences. One of the other tools that I think you had a big role in popularizing were the two-wheel tractors. And, and of course, I'm going to have to... Well, everybody knows because you already heard it on break, but BCS is also a sponsor of the show. I mean, that's that's something that I feel like that whole concept first really appeared in the new organic grower, that there was something more than a Troy built. Yeah, there. well, I started with a Troy built, so boy, we went uh, that old Troy built. I think we went through three engines over the years, and I don't know how many uh, sets of tines, and that was a really well-built tool. But I did want something that was more on the scale that we're operating on, and uh, that was when I first learned about uh, the Italian uh, tillers, and I think my first one was a Goldoni, or maybe it was Goldini, but, uh, and then I got a, actually for a while there, I had a Ferrari also. I believe I've been told that one company in Italy owns all of them now and just puts them out under different uh, brands. But no, the the small BCS is a wonderful tool. Uh, the idea of a walking tractor, I mean, especially in an age when we're told we need to get more exercise and stop sitting our butt on machines, uh, you're getting a good bit of exercise filling uh, up a big field with a BCS. Is that something that you're still using on your farm? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
uh, I had taken a, a, a clue from uh, Jean-Martin Fortier. We now have the uh, uh, rotary harrow for ours. Uh, and the thing I like about that, with a roller behind it, you can set its depth precisely. So now if we're re-sowing to a, a grass legume pasture or putting in green manures, after we use a chest seeder to spread the seeds, we can go over it uh, with that rotary harrow with the uh, uh, roller set so it's just going shallowly and it's mixing the seeds with the soil and pressing them in. And we get the great germination after that. Now, when you're managing cover crops with a, with a small-scale tool like that, what kind of a process are you following? Oh, yeah. Well, it depends on whether I'm feeling my age or whether I'm not. If I'm feeling my age, I'll go out there with the tiller on the back of the tractor, which I bought myself as a 70th birthday present seven years ago. And then I have a, a chisel plow, five shank chisel plow. So I'll till, chisel, till, and I have a fantastic seed bed, and I've put the uh, the sod crop in very well. And we, the reason I'm doing a lot more of that is we've been working on basically a sod-based rotation where animals are grazing uh, sod uh, grass legume pastures. And then after a few years, we're tilling it up and you get a free year of fertility off of that before you put it back in the pasture. So I happen to have come to think that if if there is a perpetual farm, it's going to be based on some way of uh, uh, using a side-based rotation where you come out of a grazed sod, get some years of annual crops, and then put it back into grazed sod. And in the years in grazed sod, it's building up fertility that you cash in again a few years later. And you don't end up with a, a weed mess when you do that? Um, we haven't uh, yet. I mean, there's going to be weeds in the soil, and we cultivate uh, the crops that are in that sod-based rotation. But uh, if you keep after it, uh, it's not difficult to do at all. Are there are there certain crops that favor that sod-based rotation? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we we do all our winter squash that way now. Uh, we also use it for potatoes. Potatoes seem to do quite well, uh, providing you don't uh, have a wireworm problem. Uh, brassicas do well in that. Uh, the small-seeded crops uh, like carrots, we... Uh, we, uh, if it's they're in a sod-based rotation, they're grown the second year, so the uh, the sod has had time to mellow down into a nice soil for small seeded crops. But uh, basically, uh, it, I th as I said, I think it's the answer to the perpetual farm, and we are uh, experimenting more and more with it at the moment. The only thing in our way is so darn many rocks and much of our soil, so. It's a, it's a bit of a job every time we break up a new piece of field. Why? Well, you know, I was I was going to ask about that. Those those fields that you've been farming now for almost forty years. No, almost yeah. fifty years. Yeah. Wow. Um. Now I now I'm feeling old for a second there. Um. But those fields that you've been farming for almost fifty years. Do you still get rocks coming up in those? No, no. We've pretty much got them out of the the top eight inches. At the start, when we would build a new greenhouse, we'd uh, 
till the area up, and then Barbara and I would go down it with a, a clam hose, which is sort of short-handled uh, right-angle forks, uh, going through the soil foot by foot, inch by inch, throwing the rocks in the wheelbarrow, taking that and dumping, dumping it into the rock pile. And so we did a lot of handwork in the greenhouses. In the field, they sort of have come out bit by bit over the years, especially if they were big enough to get bumped into with the tiller or the cedar. But I don't think more are coming up from down below. We've pretty much got the a soil that almost, like I said, almost looks like Iowa. Wow, that's that's impressive. Even I didn't have soil that looked like <laughs> Iowa because I was farming in the wrong part of Iowa. Yeah. So, um, what what kind of livestock are you using in that side based rotation? Yeah, at the, uh, up to now we've been using just a uh, uh, poultry. We uh, are laying uh, spend uh, an enormous uh, amount of time. In fact, uh, uh, I'm always surprised when. People don't put their uh, young poultry out on short grass until they're five weeks old. Ours are out there on day one, and we have a, a screen over it to keep uh, the uh, hawks and owls from eating them. But uh, I think short grass is the greatest vitamin pill for young poultry ever. And so uh, the poultry spend an awful time ranging over these fields, and uh, and uh, the residue from uh, uh, their feed According to statistics, 75% of what goes in at the front end of an animal comes out the back end, uh, help uh, add uh, fertility to the field. And you add that to uh, the uh, incredible root systems of your grasses and your legumes, and well, you really have something after a while. And we've been meaning to get back into cattle and sheep, and we're, I think we're finally organized enough to do that this year. But who knows? Maybe I'll come up with some other scheme. I've gotten tired of paying for the feed for broilers. And so for the last few years, we've been doing a little trial where we sow a field of, of wheat and hollis oats and, uh, and legume seeds as early in the spring as possible uh, by our broilers around the 1st of July. And on the 5th of August, when the grains start maturing and our uh, broilers are five weeks old, uh, we move them into the grain field and, and mow a section of it for them every day and move the fences and move them across it in, in an attempt to uh, to feed them from what's grown here. And that came about because I got to thinking once, uh, you know, farms used to be where they grew feed. How the heck have they become where they buy feed? And since we can grow it like that, we don't have a combine, but I was using the broilers as my two-legged combines. And that's been incredibly effective. We got a lot more to learn about the mixes to use, and maybe uh, we want to sow uh, uh, things like millet later when the soil forms, uh, warms up, and then after the wheat and oats have been eaten, move them on into uh, fields of millet. But this has been a really interesting trial, and it's part of what I call the self-fed farm, and it's what the soil-based rotation is. Uh, the, the farm is, is creating its fertility right there. And so I want the farm to create the, the feed for the animals, and that's great with sheep and cattle. They're eating grass, but it's nice to have some poultry in there. So we're going to be doing a trial next year with geese and 
rather than figure out how to get all the feathers off, I'm not good at persnickety stuff like that. But we were just going to skin them and fill skin with goose breasts and things like that and see <laughs> see what is is. Is there a market for geese in, in Maine? Oh, I think if you uh, advertise it and put a bunch of recipes there at the farmer's market next to your uh, uh, freezer of, of, of skinless goose breasts, you'd probably uh, create the market. People are fascinated by new food crops to eat. It's, uh, you know, I always tell a story about, well, we never thought Swiss chard was an easy crop to sell, all those big stems, and some people like it and some don't. So we started growing Fordhook, but harvesting the leaves young when they were no bigger than my hand with no stem. And they were so sweet and tender at that young age, we changed the name and we, we called it butter chard. And within two weeks of introducing that, every one of the 15 restaurants we were selling to had a butter chard salad on their menu. You know, restaurants love this stuff. So we just love that. created a new, uh, a new terminology. And uh, it turned out that by harvesting young, you had a, a much uh, tenderer, easier to eat uh, leaf. And it could be a salad. Well, I, I remember somebody coming to me when we were originally selling those those white Hakurii turnips and at farmers market. They were we were so proud of them and and so few people bought them. And I had somebody who finally said, you know what? If you keep calling those things turnips, there's a lot of people that are deserve to taste something that good that are never going to have a chance to do it. And and so we took it. And, I mean, kind of like you with the butter chard, we turned the name around. We called them spin ruts. And then all of a sudden they sold like hotcakes That's once we great. took turnips out yeah. of the name. Yeah. Well, I fortunately live in a part of the world, Maine, where everybody here lived on turnips or their grandparents did years ago. And turnips have a great name. So we've never had any trouble at all. In fact, I've had some of my older uh, neighbors drive over first time they got a taste of the Hakurai turnips and pull up next to me in the field and say, Elliot, you got more of those turnips best I ever ate. So... <laughs> that's a good that's a nice lobsterman accent there yeah. i'm surprised that you haven't picked that up fully out there after 50 years yeah well i i i can put it on if i need to and we joke about it but uh the my neighbors many of whom have a main accent are just some of the uh, nicest the hardest working uh, sweetest most intelligent people i know so i'd hate them to think i was uh, making fun of them that's true. That's true. Yeah, it is something about Maine. And, and you're, it, it's an interesting thing about where you are. I remember driving out there and all of a sudden realizing that I was, I think I remember going by a store that I had read about in one of Robert McCloskey's books. Yeah, you know, yeah, you like, buy that. Oh, this is, I'm, I'm here. You know, it was like, you know, Civil War battlefields, not so much, but children's literature, give me that all I can take. Yeah, so. uh, uh. Well, Elliot, with that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round and ask sure. you, which is something we do at the end of every show, where we're just going to ask you some questions in no particular order here. But I'd actually, I'm curious to know, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Oh, I suspect uh, one of the hoe designs, whether it's the collinear hoe or, or this new uh, uh, number nine wire uh, uh, tool we've created, um, it's just such a delight to have a tool that has been designed 
as much to do the job as to be easy on the body of the user. And when you use a hoe that's been designed for you to stand upright when you're using it with your thumbs up the handle, it's just a pleasure to be out there. You've been farming for almost 50 years now. What's the weirdest thing that's happened on your farm? (laughs) The weirdest thing? Well, uh, just the other morning when I went out to the chicken house, and as I say, our 200 layers live in a in a plastic-covered greenhouse on wheels that moves down a field. Uh, all the laying hens were down on the floor scurrying around looking frantic, and there was a great horned owl sitting on the roost in there who had come through the plastic roof. And uh, we have a net on a handle that we can use to catch chickens if they are really difficult when they get out. And so I went and got it and and, uh, got this guy and uh, 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 put him in a box and I was trying to decide what to do with him. He's a big, beautiful owl. And uh, so I called up to see if there was a raptor rehabilitation center. And they said I could bring him to him, but uh, he didn't need rehabilitating. He just needed to stop trying to eat my chickens. And I agreed with him on that. And uh, and the guy said, uh, how is your you know, chicken house set up? And I said, well, it has roofs at the back end that go all the way up near the roof. And obviously it was a moonlit night and he could see the chickens through the plastic and he came right through the plastic. So he suggested that I just put some shade cloth over the roof at that end and turn this owl back loose because he was actually doing me an enormous favor by eating voles, who are the worst pests in our winter greenhouses. So I turned him loose. He was happy. I was happy. He's out eating voles, and the chickens are no longer being bothered. But when you walk into your chicken house and there's a great horned owl with these marvelous big eyes staring at you from the roof, it was a, a new experience. Well, and what a great, I mean, what a great story just about living in the country. I mean, those are just the kinds of things you you don't get to do unless you live on a farm. Yeah, that's probably true. You mentioned the voles, Elliot, and that they're the worst pest on your farm. What are you doing about voles these days? Yeah, well, uh, we keep the grass on all the verges around the greenhouses and around the farm mowed short uh, so they can't hide in it. And so owls and other raptors can get them at night and and foxes can scurry around there and, and get them. And we make simple little traps out of wooden boxes with a hole at each end with a unbaited uh, trap just inside the holes that have been very effective because the thing a vole wants to do is scurry into a small dark hole. So we just make sure that we've created a bunch of small dark holes with a trap inside. These have been pretty effective, but they go in, in cycles, probably like the lemmings, I guess. And some year they're, years they're worse than others. This happens to be a pretty difficult year. And I think we've trapped 200, I think, in just between two or three greenhouses so far this year. So it's, uh, but yeah, actually every morning when I empty the traps, I go to the edge of the deer fence and I throw them over into a certain spot. And I think a fox has figured this out because the next morning they're not there. So I'm making some fox very happy with the little smacks that I deliver. 
Yeah, I wonder if you're, you know, maybe reducing the fox's effectiveness because he's figured uh, yeah, out that he, it's he's just, you know, hey, this is this yeah. easy route. I don't need to go hunt the live yeah. ones. <laughs> Could be. You know, and they probably make pretty good compost too. You know, they're, I mean, mostly protein, right? Oh yeah, no, uh, anything you can throw into the the compost will will add to it. But I was figuring I would uh, donate them to the local wildlife. I guess I'm a little more selfish than you are. Well, you know, What's I wanted the... to I wanted to talk about one thing, uh, Chris, because uh, a bunch of us old timers are engaged in a battle right now with the USDA National Organic Program because they are allowing the certification of of hydroponic operations as organic, and uh, I find this. It's really scary if you realize how much money is going into these hydroponic warehouses that uh, are springing up everywhere. And uh, customers are not being told that the tomato, organic tomato they thought they bought was hydroponic because it says nothing about that on the uh, on the box or in the store. And I happen to think that if this is allowed to continue, it is the end of the integrity of organic, and I'm very serious about that. I think the customers who have been buying food from all us old organic types through these years are buying it because that's what they want. They want food grown uh, with care by farmers who care, and uh, they know uh, exactly the techniques that they want to see used, and we are using them. And I don't know how many people are aware that the USDA National Organic Program is allowing that. But as I said, a bunch of us think that is one of the most serious things that's going on at the moment. And I truly uh, fear for the the future of uh, the integrity of the organic label. Well, and it's something I know that you've been concerned about the integrity of the organic label for a long time and and the USDA's involvement about that. What what is there I mean not not to sound defeatist, but what to do? Like what what do you do about that? The well, USDA's yeah. got control of the name and Yeah, I I'm I'm actually uh, uh, pessimistic about uh, whether we can do anything at all about it. Uh, there's so many uh, large scale, and we're talking, uh, uh, you know, fifty million dollar a year uh, total sales from these places because they can masquerade as organic. That it's almost too big to fail now. And if the USDA, for some reason, could be talked into changing that misguided policy, I'm sure all of these presently certified operations would sue them on the point of view that it's now a taking and they can't take it away since they gave it to them. So as I said, I'm pretty pessimistic on this. And uh, uh, if if the outcome of this, and there's a task force studying it now, but however, it's mostly biased uh, with the hydroponic growers. If it turns out that that has continued to be allowed, I think a bunch of us are just going to start all over again come up with an honest label that has none of the, the suspicious flaws that the USDA label has at the moment. What would be the, what do you think the next label is? Oh, I don't. What, what's, what's another word? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of uh, uh, cool words. Back when I was in 
Europe for the first time back in the 70s, there were actually three labels, four, four labels in Europe, and they all had uh, different standards that they operated by, and they used to publish the standards. And in fact, there was a Swiss supermarket chain by the name of Migros that had seen the handwriting on the wall. They actually had a separate section at one end of their produce counter where they had the, the Migros Sano, Migros Healthy produce, and they had contracted with farmers not to use the pesticides that the Swiss consumers were most concerned about to grow for that. And so there was a, a wide range of options and I think the people who have really gotten behind it know exactly what they want and at the moment are being seriously deceived by the USDA and the National Organic Program because there is absolutely no labeling that tells them that the supposedly organic food they just bought has been grown hydroponically. So what will come of that? I don't know. We just uh, I'm an old radical hippie. I hate giving up in the face of uh, a lot of industrial influence that is not honestly dealing with uh, with the situation. Well, and just on the topic of, of what's next, Elliot, I mean, I, I'm really curious. You've been, you've been at farming for 50 years now. You're obviously not a spring chicken anymore. Um, where... What's what's next for Four Season Farm? What happens uh, 10, yeah, 20 well, years ago? Yeah, we've, we've saved up money for the last few years and are spending it this year to have a little house built on the corner of the property for a farm manager. And, uh, you know, it's room for a family, couple of kids, uh, be a nice little house. And uh, that would be a, a step in the right direction to have sort of a, a permanent uh, crew here. Mainly we sort of resupply every year with wonderful new young people from universities. And I've told my kids that when I'm no longer around, if, if they don't want to farm the place, they should just find some nice young farm family and rent the place to them for a dollar a year. And and keep it in production because uh, an awful lot of work went into creating uh, the soils we grow on, and it would really be nice to see them continue to uh, be productive. Seems like a great way to move forward, and, and kind of, and I like how that's also in the spirit of of where we started the story today about uh, Scott Nearing and yeah, yeah. giving the land for what he paid for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can never thank the Nearings enough. I would never have. I'd land if it hadn't been for them, and it was a very kind thing to do, and I owe them a great deal for having uh, uh, had uh, uh, ethics and uh, and having stood up for them. I'm going to pivot back to the lightning round and, and get two more questions in here. What's the best advice you've ever gotten, Elliot? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the joking things I say to people who write or, or come here and say, okay, I want to get into small farming, first thing you say is, well, don't quit your day job just yet. Uh, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, effort to get into this. Uh, you better really want to do it. Uh, but if you do get into it, it's the same secret as the secret for any other business you're running, and it's attention to detail. And I was fortunate enough to be told about attention to detail 
years ago, and I would say that's probably the uh, best information, the best uh, yeah, input that I was given. That whatever you're doing, you really want to be paying close attention to uh, what's going on, what's going on around you, and how well it's working, and what may be transpiring out there in the market that's going to change your ability to uh, uh, continue to make a living at this. And so, uh, yeah, first step, I was glad somebody told me to pay attention to detail. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh, well, I was fortunate that I really enjoyed challenges. So if it were somebody who wasn't sure whether they wanted to do this, I would tell them that uh, the satisfaction of doing this comes from overcoming challenges. And there tends to be a, a, a thought process in our world where people are looking for the easy life. And I think I'm fortunate that I've always found the easy life to be incredibly boring and the challenging life to be the most satisfying. So. I would tell them to uh, uh, don't be afraid of challenges, uh, embrace them because uh, they're going to make your life interesting and you're going to learn an awful lot from uh, overcoming them and solving them. It's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Elliot, both for being on the podcast and for all that you've done for the organic farming movement. It's really been an honor to have you on the show today. Well, it's great that you have this radio program, Chris, and I think it's an obvious success, and I wish you all the best with it. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 61 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Coleman. That's C-O-L-E-M-A-N. You know what? I want to share one more thing because it says something about the kind of guy Elliot is. We usually have a little bit of chat before the show, and then there's a little bit of chat after the show. And, you know, Elliot asked me about my kids. Elliot met them on just two occasions almost 20 years ago. And I just, I don't know, it really touched me because that's the kind of class act that Elliot is. And I think ah, it's, it's cool, but... It's also the kind of class act that almost everybody in this organic farming community is. And I know I've said it before, but it's just such an honor to be a part of this. Thank you. And if you enjoy the podcast, uh, just to go into the pitch mode here, I'll bet you'd enjoy my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. Check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing. I appreciate so much all the guest suggestions that I receive on the website at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please go there and let me know who you'd like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 